This week on Medical Minefield, Dr Joanna Rose, a campaigner for people who are donor-conceived. Something that was really important for me for decades is I just really wanted to be able to look my own genetic father in the eyes. And what would you say? I actually have no idea. Um, hello. <laughs> would be a start. Be a good start, wouldn't it? But it was quite sad and profound for me to think that my mother and I had never looked my genetic father in the eyes. Just really means a lot to me. Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman and I am a health journalist, which means I spend my life asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. I am joined on the line by our reporter, Joe McFarlane. Hello, Joe. Hello. This week, we're asking just why was it so important to remove anonymity for sperm donors? As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefield, tweet us at MedMinefield. Now, Joe, this is such an interesting area of medicine uh, and and probably one that that many people don't instantly, unless they're involved in it or have been involved in it, know about. Uh, So, But you've been writing about this week and um, it's, it's due to the fact that in 2005 there was a big change in the regulations surrounding sperm donation. Uh, Before 2005, believe it or not, you could donate sperm uh, pretty much anonymously. So uh, if someone wanted to become pregnant using that donor sperm, uh, they they could do so. But it would be basically, if if, unless the, the sperm donor had expressly said that they were happy to be contacted or, you know, given their details, they could remain completely anonymous. And so that child may be in a situation, may have been in a situation where they grew up and, and could never know who their real father was. And this changed in 2005. The HFEA, the regulators who, who oversee all fertility treatments in the UK, um, changed the law to say that you couldn't be anonymous anymore and you had to consent to being contacted at least to your offspring when they turned 18. And I remember, Joe, writing about this uh, back uh, just before the change in law. And I interviewed a man who was the child of a, a sperm donor. And the interview really stayed with me. It was it was a very haunting uh, thing to him. He was a portrait painter, interestingly. And oh, he became very fixated with trying to to figure out why he looked the way he looked, you know, why he was the way he was, because yeah. he wasn't just like his mum. And he mm. knew that there was this mystery other parent, because he always knew that he was the child of a sperm donor. Um, mm. And all he knew was that his mum had gone to the fertility service at King's College Hospital in the early 80s and got the sample, and that's it. And he'd worked yeah. out that many of the people that would give uh, sperm donations, for, I think that you got remunerated in some sp- small way um, Mm. were medical students so he would go to King's Mm. College Hospital and sit 
outside and look at all of the doctors going in and out and try mm. he said he would try and spot someone who looked like him and and yeah. i thought the fact that he was a portrait painter as well and that was that was you know that he was fascinated with the study of faces uh, was it was yeah. such a you know such a poignant interview and and you know he he just said he would he just would never know why he was the way he was until mm. he knew his father and he would never know his mm. father and and i mean this was a story that um you know this was a story that you've been you've been hearing repeated this week wasn't it joe yes i mean i don't see how you can be anything other than completely moved by talking to most of the people who were conceived in these circumstances i think it's easy to imagine uh, that if you were conceived um, by any method and you were born, then you should simply be grateful to be alive. And that's, in fact, what a lot of these people have been told by their families. You know, if, if they've been told that they're conceived by a sperm donor at all, which a lot of them weren't, uh, they're told, you know, we'd just be grateful to be here. You know, isn't it wonderful that we were able to create you? So even in loving families, that's the narrative. But the reality is, you know, like the guy that you interviewed, a lot of them look in the mirror don't recognise the rest of their family and their own faces often and have no real way of knowing where their genetic heritage came from at all. There's a kind of real sense of mystery at the mm. centre of their lives. This idea of this kind of hole, there's being something missing. Mm. And for many, many years, and this takes us up to the present day when we have uh, now DNA analysis that can give some answers, but for decades, people conceived in this way literally had no way of tracking down who their father was because the industry was a complete wild west. It was private clinics using, as you say, medical students or university lecturers who would come in and you know get a tenner um, for a quick donation <laughs> to supplement their small income. Actually, one sperm donor who emailed me this week said that he knew of a colleague of his who would cunningly divide his um, donation into two separate cups so he would get £20. You know, so this was very much a kind of means of getting an extra tenner to go down the pub with. Many of them were really young, you know, so 19, 20. Yeah. And arguably, I'd say that at 19, 20, young men, you know, don't really think about what their sperm can lead to. You know, the idea of a baby coming from it is so far from their experience. Mm. Uh, so for them, anonymity was incredibly important. I mean, uh, I, well, when I was researching this um, this week, I, I came across some absolutely astonishing stories. Um, there was one uh, in the states. Uh, this was not a UK story, but but um, they uh, a uh, the child of a, a sperm donor had managed to track down thirty two separate siblings, and it wow. was so interesting. They'd photo he'd photographed them all, and it was so. It was so interesting to see how alike they looked. I mean, they all looked like mm. siblings, all thirty-two mm. of them, or whatever it was. I mean, it was nuts. And and so, you know, what what were the rules around that, uh, Joe? You know, uh, could it, could you could you do that? Was there no limit on how many times a single sample or single donor could no. be used? No. Well, before nineteen ninety-one, which is when the regulator, the HFEA, was established there was no regulation whatsoever. Mm. Nothing was illegal, but um, the, there were no controls or safeguards or anything on any of this whatsoever. So we know from quite high-profile cases that have emerged 
that some clinics, I mean, um, you know, the, uh, the the doctors were using, say, um, their husbands or relatives' sperm um, and just kind of doling it out. I mean, in other cases, apparently people coming for IVF, you know, leftover sperm samples were just being used to artificially inseminate couples, probably without any consent. And um, oh there really God. was no control over it whatsoever. Now, of course, um, there's a 10-family limit that the HFEA set. That's Which quite means, a lot, though, um, isn't it? That you could you could have yeah. ten, but but I suppose nowadays they they know they track it. So I think a big yeah. problem before was that they, there was no tracking of this. So potentially no. some of these mega donors that ended up siring, you know, a hundred children from, mm. a, from you know a single. I know it's it, it's bonkers to think about. You could end up sort of married to your half yes, sister. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that of course is still a possibility, but um, the regulator now does have a record of every single um, <clears throat> fertility treatment that's carried out in this country and every single donor and every single child who's born from a donor. So mm. although between 1991 and 2005, when the new law banning um, anonymous donation came into force, children born between that period don't get access to identifying information from their donor, there is still a record of who their donor is, mm. um, you know, should it be required at some point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the reason we're talking about this this week is because the rule change in 2005 comes into play this month. So the cohort of children born in October 2005 will turn 18. And so they will now be able to get in contact with their biological Mm. fathers. Yeah, that's right. So anyone uh, having fertility treatment after the beginning of April 2005 their donor will have consented to be contacted when that child turns 18, should the child want to do so, of course, and will have provided a whole load of identifying contact information, such as an email address, um, a, a contact address, a physical address, a phone number. Um, now, I mean, whether these will remain valid you know, is another question altogether, and, and donors should really update the information over the years if it changes. But, I mean, arguably their identity will be known and it's not difficult to find people these days with um, social media and electoral registers and all the rest of it. So, you know, largely speaking, any child turning 18 from now onwards who uh, wants to find their biological father should be able to do so. And Joe, there are reasons beyond the emotional that uh, um, mean it's important to know uh, who your biological parents are because it feeds into medical histories. You know, there are genetic illnesses and such like, and and that's something that you've discovered. Yes. I mean, one of the lovely ladies conceived via sperm donation who we are going to be talking to in this programme one of her very close friends when she was living in Australia was um, a young woman called Narelle Gresh, who very sadly died of bowel cancer aged 31. Mm. Now, Narelle um, appealed to the authorities in Australia. She had herself had been conceived by a sperm donation and had never managed to find her father. But uh, appealed to the authorities, said she was dying of bowel cancer and she wanted to be able to meet her father before she died. They agreed to that and six weeks before she died, she met her father for the first time and discovered that he carried a bowel cancer gene which she had unknowingly inherited. Now, had she known about that earlier in her life, she could have had access to earlier screening. Very difficult to say what might have happened. Could she have lived for longer? I think that's likely. But she also knows that she knew, found out that this guy also had eight other 
children born by sperm donation. And it's not known whether they know that they may carry this bowel cancer gene as well. So that's one Gosh. really tragic and poignant example of what can happen here. Um, mm. But there are also lots of other examples, of course. I mean, any condition you can think of that's hereditary or even, you know, conditions like cystic fibrosis where you require kind of both parents to have a copy of the gene. It's also important to know whether you're a carrier of that sort of thing as well. So without that extensive medical history, you're kind of flying blind really to a certain extent. And mm. I think a lot of these people throughout the years will have not known about these risk factors and may have died as a result um, or may have always wondered where this came from, you know, because a lot of the times they're told, well, I mean, you know, this isn't in your family, so, you know, it, it's probably not hereditary. But when there's that chasm of knowledge on one side of your family tree, who knows where it might have come from? Well, before we go any further, let's let's hear from someone who is directly affected by this situation. Joining us now is Dr. Joanna Rose, a campaigner for people who are donor-conceived. Dr. Rose, thank you so much for finding time to join us today. We're talking about the change in law that means from this month on, 18-year-olds who were born via sperm donor, that they'll be able to contact their biological fathers. You were conceived via a sperm donor. When did you first discover that? Yeah, um, I discovered when I was around eight years old. Mm. And I think in terms of openness, in those days, actually, that was really quite revolutionary that I was told at that age. I was conceived in 1971. I was born in 1972. I'm really pleased that my dad did tell me. I think often it can be more profoundly affecting for the people that are not genetically related in a relationship. So for my dad and I, you know, we were not genetically related to each other. And perhaps that was, we loved each other, but that that's more of a significant thing to be dealing with than mm. obviously I'm genetically related to my mother. I think there's a kind of asymmetry that can happen in um, don't conceive families versus um, adoptive families where, for example, both parents are not genetically related or in family is not affected by any of these issues where both parents tend to be genetically related to the child. Do you remember what you thought when your parents told you this? Yeah, I mean, it it was an emotional experience. My dad was actually crying in the first place, and that was kind of why I'd asked him to tell me what the matter was, and I was very much of the belief that I could cheer him up. And we went for a walk, and he did tell me, and I do remember wiping his tears away and saying... I love you. You're the only dad I kind of know, the only dad I've got, and I love you. Wow. I mean, I must say, there's different ways to be open. I mean, obviously, I really support openness as much as possible in families. From my perspective, there are levels of openness. So, for example, my parents were okay discussing the fact that they'd used donor conception. It was very much viewed as a treatment. And in terms of what that actually meant for me, and my body, that wasn't really explored. There was never a reference to a human being being involved. It was more that there was a treatment, mm. and here I am. It seems from what you're saying that he didn't feel good about this situation. What was upsetting him, do you think? I think it is quite an intense issue for most mm. people, you know, if they're infertile or if they're adoptive parents. You know, it is, isn't a minor thing, but in, but in those days... 
infertility was really considered quite shameful or treated as something that should be hidden. And I don't think that that was good for my dad at all to live with that type of kind of imposed shame or secrecy. Mm. And so I suppose he didn't really have a chance to talk things through in a way that would have been more healthy for him, I think. The consequence for me was that I basically, I, I think I internalized it. And when I did try and ask questions about, you know, why am I tall? Or, you know, I don't think I was really helped because there was no reference to a human being behind the act. I couldn't really properly understand it. So it was quite a shock for me. In my early 20s, I studied nursing and we were looking at screen projections about conception and the lecture theatre. Even at that point, I hadn't really processed, I guess because I wasn't encouraged to, that I had a genetic father involved that you know was known as the donor. But even the term donor, I don't think that was used. So yeah, it took a long time for me to really come to terms with actually, okay, I've got two different people here. I've got my dad who's raised me and I've got a genetic father and that genetic father is going to likely be feeding into my body in terms of my shape and my face and all sorts of things about me that kind of seemed a bit out of place or a bit different. And you've been looking for your father now, haven't you, for 30 years? That's a long time. Yeah, just over 30 years. What is that like? I mean, you can, and I know that you're deeply involved in the donor conceived community as a whole. For you and for so many other people to have that sort of absence in your lives must be very yeah. difficult. Yeah, it's it's kind of a. I I don't know who can understand and who can't. I mean, for me, it's something that's not visible for people from the outside looking at me. They can't see the effect on me necessarily, but when I feel it, I do feel, you know, a really deep sadness about that and a really deep frustration that that's a kind of contrived situation that's been, you know, intentionally created. And that when I'm saying, actually, you know, this was a bit of an experimental means of reproduction and actually you hadn't considered this is really hurting me, systemically there's been a lack of effort to, to do anything to help. So it, you, you kind of end up with this notion of experimental reproduction resulting in different batches of human beings being conceived basically with the recognition of different sets of human rights. So you get pre-1991, post-1991, you know, whatever it is. And I find that really sad. I think, you know, if you create human beings and you come up with, you, you realize that actually there's a general need, or at least... Not everybody will necessarily want to know who and where they come from, but there's enough people who said they do to mean that actually, okay, I think it's time that systemically that's properly taken on board. It sounds to me that the language that you use is very interesting. You feel a bit like the way that you conceived was a bit of a medical experiment almost. Yeah, and I mean, I studied a PhD looking at this topic which was really helpful for me because for a long time, I felt like I was having to learn a verbal martial art to defend my right to know or my interest to know. I was really shut down left, right and center in terms of, are you saying you'd rather not be here if it weren't for it? How do your parents feel about this? But you were wanted and loved, you know, all these different things. But actually, when you look at the literature at that time and the way that people were actually connected, collecting records on us and effectively studying us without our knowledge and consent. 
so there was kind of, it was, it was an experiment on us, kind of without our knowledge. And I, I don't feel comfortable about that. Certainly people that I've interviewed over the years who were conceived during that period in the 70s, there's no chance of them ever finding out who their genetic father is because no records or improper records were kept. Yeah. I mean, is, is it a possibility for you? I mean, initially, I think the gatekeepers were the gynecologists themselves and there was a notion of what people don't know won't harm them. And all sorts of things took place. You know, I was conceived at Harley Street and it appears that there was basically sperm used without knowledge and consent from couples that were providing sperm for just testing for fertility. You've had gynecologists using their own sperm for hundreds of families. You know, when I first came out and was talking about this, there was a real effort to shut down the need to open up records. Mm. But the wonderful thing that's happened kind of out of the blue is the development of things like FTDNA and Ancestry and those gatekeepers have lost their power. So for, yeah, so for a lot of people actually, they can, they can find if they've got, you know, they put their genes on the right, you know, on Ancestry or FTDNA, it is possible to solve these mysteries a lot of the time. So you're saying when you do one of these tests and someone else who you're genetically directly related to does one of these tests, you get an alert or something, don't you? I mean, it's complicated and I'm not, I'm really dyslexic, so it's certainly not an area I'm good at. But there are people who are really good at it. And, you you know, you provide your genes or a saliva sample or whatever it is, and you, you'll see that your genetic codes are matching with certain families or certain family groups. It can result in leads that can be followed up and ultimately more and more people are resolving these issues despite gatekeepers saying you can't go there. You know, it's locked. I think a lot of the time we're painted as, you know, somehow scary, disruptive, ungrateful. There's all sorts of negative connotations, but ultimately, you know, I think that's really unfair. The large percentage of the donor offspring I've met who really want to know who and where they come from are just reasonable human beings who are asking questions that most people don't have to ask. Mm. And, you know, some people just want to know a certain amount of information at that time that's really important for their medical history. Some people have really been wondering about their own ethnicity. Some people want to know if they're marrying their half-siblings or dating half-siblings. You know, they're really serious, legitimate questions that we're left with and I'm really grateful for those genetic services that help us out of this horrible black hole of ignorance that we would otherwise be left in. Do you imagine your father? Have you sort of sat down? Do you do you picture him? Yeah, it started direct. And when, once the penny properly dropped, and I thought, okay, you know, I had this very very vivid dream one time in my early twenties where I basically was speaking to my dad through a glass window, but his lips weren't moving and I had a phone. And basically, the long and the short of it was there were two dads. And when I woke up, I was really frightened by this very vivid dream. I was saying, Dad, where are you? Dad. And my dad was looking at me through this window and his lips were not moving. And he's going, I'm here, Joe. I'm here. And at the time in my dream, I couldn't say, but there are two of you and it's freaking me out. 
But when I woke up, I kind of had to think about it. And I thought, what was that? That was, you know, my heart was going, I was sweating. And then I realized, actually, there's two men here. And there's my dad that I was raised by, and he looks a certain way. And actually, there's another man who wouldn't look that way. Basically, I ran to the mirror and tried making moustaches and beards out of my long hair and, and thought, wow, he must look like me. Because I think I do have a particular look that isn't really reflected in the rest of the family that I know. And then eventually I kind of thought, wow, this is actually, you know, as closely related to this human being as you can get. This is a first degree relative. Yes. And I haven't got any way of contacting him to say, help, <laughs> you know, I need, I need to know who you are. I need some information. I, you know, I'm not a monster. I'm not, dis- I'm not meaning to be disruptive. I just, I don't like this lacuna, this lack of information. It's really uncomfortable. I'm finding it very difficult to form a healthy sense of identity. Something that was really important for me for decades is I just really wanted to be able to look my own genetic father in the eyes. And what would you say? I actually have no idea. Um, hello. <laughs> would be a start. <laughs> a good start, wouldn't it? But it was quite sad and profound for me to think that my mother and I had never looked my genetic father in the eyes. It's just personal to me. I think some people have different things that are important to them if they're searching for a genetic parent. But for me, that was something, along with medical history, you know, it was something I really wanted to know and to be able to do. So, yeah, it just really means a lot to me. Well, Dr. Joanna Rose, thank you so much for joining us and and, uh, being so frank. This is an absolutely fascinating subject. You mentioned when we began the conversation that, that you had something you specifically wanted to say. I do. I do. I want to celebrate. I found my biological father, or, or I've been helped to find my biological father. I can't talk in depth about it, but this week, this has um, been confirmed, and I will be able to look him in the eyes. Good Lord. So that's my news. I, hopefully, I, I don't know. I'm kind of, it's been a big week. It's been a huge week. So you deserve that. <laughs> You're choosing your words quite carefully, I believe, because it's quite a sensitive moment, I suppose. Yeah, I do have to respect. I have to respect boundaries and privacy, and I'll do my very best to do that. But I am so overjoyed to um, let out of that cage, you know. just it was, It's been horrible not knowing that, and it's amazing. It's wonderful. Mm. And I'm so happy to be able to share that. I do have a mission to share that with you now. And so pleased for you. That's wonderful. Thank you. I really hope that once it's uh, the dust has settled with all this, that you will come back on the podcast and, and tell us how things went, if you can. I'll definitely be checking my boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously, um, my key interests are to... Um, protect what I've now got. Absolutely. Absolutely. But as long as I've as long you know, I'll do what I'm allowed to do and um I'm really happy to uh share the good news where I can. Great. Well look, Dr. Joanna, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. And if there's any any people who have donated in the past who hear this, hopefully some people will understand how important it can be for people and, and, and help. 
help those people and respond without too much fear. We're not we're not mad bad. We're just normal human beings who want to know a bit about our own identities. Wow, Joe, what what a revelation. I know. I'm so pleased for her. Genuinely. I mean it's been such a lot. Imagine searching for three decades for your father. Mm. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. As someone who was brought up with two parents who are both, as far as I know, my biological parents, I just can't imagine what she's been through, that sort of turmoil. And actually, I also wonder how difficult, perhaps, it will be for her own father and her own family that she's grown up with. Always complicated, isn't it, these kinds of relationships. But, you know, I wish her all the best and I hope she gets the answers that she's looking for. I don't I don't know if you guys have seen the Netflix documentary about the fertility doctor in Indiana who he lied to the women about giving them donated sperm and actually was using his own. Oh my god. No, yeah, I think I've seen I've seen, it's a guy with a old guy with a yeah, yeah. I mean not really the guy you would pick out of a lineup to be your sperm donor and he ended up fathering <laughs> <laughs> I think at least 94 kids. How? And they all found out wow. in this documentary. Yeah. And I guess you kind of learn why it's so important to know in these situations for some people. Yeah. Because you end up finding, mm. you know, well, this in this particular situation, this guy kind of betrayed their mothers. Yeah. Like a hundred of them. I think, I think it, you know, the, these kinds of weird stories happen because, and it was something that, that you mentioned, um, I think, at the beginning and, and, and uh, uh, Joanna mentioned as well, that in some cases, you know, due to the stigma surrounding infertility, that it's kept a complete secret. So people do these things. It's sort of a shadowy, shadowy world, or it certainly was, where, mm. you know, these rogue operators could get away with that because they knew that the people coming to see them wouldn't tell anyone that they'd gone for the treatment, that that it no, was all being done in secret and it was all covert. And, you know, I mean, that's that's what happens, isn't it, in a, in a stigmatised yeah. area of, of health, I suppose. Absolutely. I mean, and, and the reality is so many of these um, donor-conceived people have told me is that there will be thousands of grown adults out there who still don't know that they were donor-conceived. Because actually the practice at the time, the accepted practice at the time, was that doctors would advise parents not to tell their children. So it's not just not telling anyone else that they'd had fertility treatment, but not telling the children that they were donor-conceived. So for some people, you know, their parents perhaps went to their graves with that secret. And worse still now, because we've got this new kind of genetic testing technology, which is commercially being rolled out. I mean, anyone can you know, do one of these tests for 70 quid or something and send it off to an ancestry site, they're finding blatantly that actually what they grew up with was a complete lie. They're and not genetically related to their parents. To their father specifically, yeah. To their yeah. fathers. Um, yeah, so just, which, I mean, um, I've, I've done one of those tests and, and it's it's interesting that I could, you know, not only see the genetics of, of my parents, because uh, he mm. did, my dad did the test as well, Oh, but great, I yeah. can also see the genetic history of his parents and all of that kind of stuff. Wow. But you don't need it, do you? You know, we always joke that we're turning into our parents as we get older, don't we? And, uh, <laughs> you know, I certainly, you know, I do that. And, and the latest thing, I, I ran around the office with um, 
the latest iteration of the aging uh, filter on TikTok, uh, putting it in front of people's faces and giving them an absolute <laughs> shock. Um, but it's hilarious because if, if you stand me next to my dad with the aging filter on, we look like brothers, which is oh, that's hilarious. hilarious. Um, so, you know, well, my, clearly my mother we're related. Very kindly, <laughs> my mother very kindly said to me recently that I looked like her long dead mother and that she'd only realised that because I now look older. That's so interesting. That's my, nice. my, my mum my does say that, that she thinks that I actually look more like her dad than, than my dad. Which is interesting. Yeah. I'm a lot, mm. I'm a lot slimmer than the rest of my family. I also discovered uh, that I carry the fat gene, the FTO gene, two copies. I've carried the obesity, yeah, the obesity gene. Um, well, you which, would never know, Barney. Exactly, exactly. Mm, so, so your uh, genetics uh, aren't always yeah, exactly predetermined. I'm off to yeah. have a, a, a light salad for lunch. A donut. <laughs> <laughs> that's all we've got time for this week thanks so much for joining me listeners might realize that we've, we've not got eve last week was her last for a while because she's off to new york to pastures new but i'm i'm hoping that we'll be able to somehow work out a technological way that we can continue doing the podcast but thanks for stepping into the breach this week joe and also brilliant to get julia on the mic our producer you can read all about this subject specifically and other things that are equally fascinating in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday. Consume that in newspaper format on mailplus.co.uk or on the Mail app. And we will be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. So we'll see you then. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye.